Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In this election year, and just following the Independence Day holiday, we have something of a patriotic garden theme going. Joining us today is Marta McDowell, historian and writer who lives and gardens and writes in Chatham, New Jersey. Her self-described greatest interest lies in the relationship between writers and their gardens, the connection, as she says, between pen and trowel. This interest is well illustrated and developed in her titles to date, including Emily Dickinson's Gardens, Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life, and most recently, The Patriotic History of the White House Gardens, entitled All the President's Gardens. Welcome, Marta. Thank you, Jennifer. Happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. And I um, am familiar with your earlier your earlier works and have really enjoyed all the President's Gardens. And it reminded me of so much history that I didn't know I had forgotten and <laughs> cemented some history for me because of the gardening theme running through it. And so I really enjoyed it. And one of my questions for you is, you know, what is your background and what brought you to your interest in gardens and writing about gardens and especially writing about writers and or in this case, the presidents and the garden at the White House? Well, I've always loved to garden and I've always loved to read. So I guess it's sort of the natural intersection between those two. And I don't know, I think that Our inspiration for gardening can come from a lot of different places. And for me, I like a a hook to see, you know, what other people have grown and how they've thought about gardening. And so you definitely follow this through Emily Dickinson's gardens and the gardening life of Beatrix Potter. When you started, when you determined that you would write this book on the gardens at the White House and the ways in which every president has affected them, almost every president has affected them through time, what was the greatest hook for you? Like, where did you find, like, I I am really sort of interested in this. Where was that for you? Well, it started out as total panic because my editor said, why don't you write a book about American garden history? Uh, This is after I pitched to him, why don't I write a book about those conquered Massachusetts people like Emerson and Thoreau and the Alcotts, because they all garden together, Hawthorne. And he said, well, I'd buy it, but I don't think anyone else would. And then said, why don't you write a history of American gardening? Which sounded like the longest, most boring project I'd ever taken on. (laughs) And so I needed some way to kind of cut it down. And a student of mine at the New York Botanical Garden, uh, he actually was from South Africa. He had done a little, you know, sort of presentation and two-page paper on the gardens at the White House over time. And it was really interesting. It was a lot of information that I didn't know. And so I wrote to him and said, do you mind if I use your idea for a book? (laughs) 
<laughs> and that's how it started. And you do give him very nice credit for that in the beginning of uh, this book. So that is a, a wonderful story. And he was clearly happy to have you take this and run. He was indeed. So yeah. it, was a, it was a happy ending for all. Well, so in the course of your research, talk about the, the process that you went through and the different archives that you, you had to kind of plumb to find some of this, you know, pretty esoteric information in some cases. So, well, there, there's the glory of the Internet, and that does really help, uh, particularly with something like the president's house, because the papers of the founding fathers, for example, are all available on something called Founders Online. So that was a great place to start. Of course, a lot of people have written about the White House over time, uh, you know, and so that was another place that I could look, uh, you know, period newspapers and periodicals, and then the National Archives were a huge help, which that actually is an umbrella that includes the various presidential libraries. And then some of the big historical societies, like the Massachusetts Historical Society, has all of the John Quincy Adams papers. And so I spent some time up there in addition to using their online stuff. And one of the interesting things to me, so so to describe it for listeners who have not yet read the book, it is a very chronological um, overview of the, the changes and additions and renovations and thought process around the landscaping of the White House from the very beginning where Washington is trying to lay it out in relationship to the establishment of the Capitol and then all the way through to um, the Obamas living in the House and uh, really taking on this theme of edible gardens and activity and health in our lives. And it, it follows... As you say early in the book, not every president and or his spouse and or their head gardener do something really significant in the garden, but a great many of them do. And so you kind of go through and you you do a, a wonderful job of connecting what is happening in this garden to what is happening in the greater uh, cultural environment for both gardening and kind of a cultural sense of self as a country without ever really getting into politics, per se? Uh, well, I'm glad it worked, because that was really my intent, um, to be nonpartisan, which was much easier at the beginning, I will say, <laughs> than it was as I got towards the end with people that I remembered. Hmm. Um, so I think of the presidency as sort of a cultural funnel, Right, so we have all these various influences, and we have people. They're just real people, some better than others, who are occupying these roles as presidents and first ladies and gardeners. And yet they're all, you know, sort of taking in the influences, the fashions of their time. And so you end up with a kind of mirror to what's going on in the rest of the country. So that was really fun. Um, I believe that history should be interesting and entertaining. So <laughs> those were always the things I was looking for. You know, how could you make it fun as well as 
informative. Um, so, and it was both. So the, um, you know, and I'm I'm sure that my guess is that as you were researching and starting to put this together, you were coming across information that made you go, "Wow, that is so cool! I did not know that." I certainly had that experience in reading it. Um, Especially, I mean, I think the things that stand out for me right now, having having read it uh, a little while back, is the expansion of the conservatories at a certain point, how the technology in our culture and larger world then comes to bear on how the gardens are expanding. So glass becomes more easily available and the conservatories go up. The, you know, ironworker uh, technology develops and things get more interesting in the conservatories at that point. And then, um, you know, the, and the height of the glass houses at the, on the grounds of the White House where they have a violet house and a camellia house and a, you know, it was just sort of crazy and, and fun. And I made me want to go visit those. And the illustrations in the book really bring some of those to life. What, what were some of the, the, you know, presidents you were surprised at or um, garden developments that made you go, wow? Well, the first big surprise to me was that Jefferson didn't actually garden very much. Yeah, I was surprised by that, too. You know, when he was president, I thought, well, you know, this is going to be, he'll be my ringer. You know, everybody knows Jefferson and the wonderful gardens at Monticello. But he was really busy with other things, I guess, completing the White House itself and working on the city, you know, sort of the street trees and things like that, and didn't do that much gardening. Although I will say I loved the fact that he gardened indoors at the White House, so he grew roses and geraniums. And then the day I found out that among them he had this mockingbird in a cage, and the mockingbird's name was Dick. I just thought that was so great because, you know, I was a child who grew up in the 60s, and so in relation to the presidency, I heard the name Dick at the dinner table frequently at my home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, well, that and- was good. The uh, John Quincy Adams was a surprise. He mm-hmm. was a great gardener, uh, which... What did I know about John Quincy Adams before I started on this? Well, and he's very human the way you describe him as sort of taking refuge in the gardens and learning about plant names with his head gardener and really using them in this human and personal way. And I think there's a quote that says, you know, he he felt gardening was a personal act. And you describe that really beautifully. Well, it was an escape for him. He had a kind of miserable one-term presidency. Uh, I, I got the feeling that, you know, people were throwing stones, metaphorical stones at him from the moment he took the oath of office. And he learned to garden while he was president. So, you know, he, he made it well into adulthood without really being involved in any kind of horticulture. And he just I took refuge in it, I think is the right way of putting it. Mm-hmm. So that was marvelous. I mean, all his diaries are online, and the man wrote everything down for his whole life, I think, <laughs> volumes and volumes. But it's really interesting to read the things that he wrote 
while he was president, not for me about the meetings, but about those very early morning hours when he would go out and weed and plant and, you know, again, learn about the botanical names of plants and plant tree seeds. This is Cultivating Place, and I'm Jennifer Jewell. Following up on the 4th of July holiday, today we're joined by author and historian Marta McDowell, whose most recent book is All the President's Gardens, out now from Timber Press. Marta has been walking us through the early processes of the book and the gardens surrounding the White House through some of the early presidencies. We'll be right back after the break to speak more. Stay with us. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're looking at the course of American history through the specific lens of the White House gardens. Before the break, author and historian Marta McDowell talked us through the early processes of her book and the gardens surrounding the White House through some of the early presidencies. We're back to discuss some of the unsung gardeners who have brought the gardens to life throughout the years and some of the cultural trends we might see reflected in the history and changes to the White House gardens. Welcome back. So let's talk about the head gardeners who take care of the White House gardens through the years. They're interesting figures in their own right. Just before the break, we were talking about Adams and what was in many ways his apprenticeship in gardening at the hands of his head gardener during his presidency. The gardeners stay for a really long time in general. So since the beginning, you know, when I've been able to sort of find them since 1800, there have only been 13 head gardeners, all men, um, who have held the post, and a lot of them have stayed multiple decades. And the you have a very good list at the back of the book outlining the names and the dates that they were there, and there's that wonderful um, term that you use saying that they are part of the B team, meaning they will be there through multiple presidencies, which I thought was great. And um, and they they weren't names that I recognize. So as a you know a, a gardener and a reader about gardening and we have plenty of gardening celebrity even early on in in our history as a country and yet these are names we don't particularly know per se except for you know maybe when you get to the Kennedy administration and you have Bunny Mellon working or I.M. Pei or Frederick Law Olmsted earlier working on what the layout would be there were not a lot of names I knew was that surprising to you? Yeah especially for the hands-on gardeners 
you know, the designers, yes, you know, the kind of the big names are represented, as, as you might expect, but the gardeners themselves, including the ones at present, they keep their heads down and they work really hard. Uh, the, the day that I visited and, you know, had a chance to go around with the gardener on the grounds, he never stopped. He was just like a whirlwind. So as he was showing me around very graciously and answering all of my questions, he's, you know, deadheading and pulling weeds and helping his staff and, you know, <laughs> giving instructions. He's a real head gardener. Yes. Yes. A, a steady, constant gardening. I have a picture of him where there are, you know, sort of, flowers, spent flowers and weeds sticking out of his pocket because as he was talking to me, he's just like doing things and stuffing them in his pocket, just like I do in the garden. <laughs> just like every gardener I know does. That's great. <laughs> the So one of the things that I, I really wanted to ask you, having done all of this research and been immersed in it, was after reading it, it felt like there seemed to be this, you know, this sort of ebb and flow to the gardens where they expand and contract with our economy, with our political, um, you know, tone at any given time. Were there were there patterns that you saw through this about the gardens relation, the, the White House gardens relationship to American garden style as a whole? Well. I mean, take, for example, the Trumans, right? The Trumans do a big redo of the White House, uh, the interior, because, frankly, the building was starting to collapse. But they also kind of roll out an instant gardening, you know, very 1950s, where they have sod coming out like a wall-to-wall carpet, and they bring in these giant boxwoods, and they bring in a full-size cherry tree in bloom to be planted that day, and it just reminded me of, you know, kind of that instant gardening that started taking hold and we still haven't gotten rid of. <laughs> no, we haven't, but we're working on that, right? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, too. And, <laughs> and that's the fun in that. <laughs> right, right. Um, and But that was a wonderful description that you went through through that where, like, the bathtub is falling through the floor and... Um, a piano falls through a floor. And then the pictures of that section where they renovate and have to redo foundations and put in central air conditioning. And there is a fantastic photograph of workers having excavated like maybe 500 yards of tree roots in order to not damage these heirloom trees and their root systems, but to get the piping in underneath them. I was so impressed by that photo. I will say, Jennifer, that of all the things on the White House grounds, the thing that impressed me the most was the collection of trees. Mm -hmm. They are absolutely stunning. You know, very, very well looked after and beautifully placed. And they really, really work to protect those trees. Uh, lots of natives, not entirely native, um, and many of them planted by important people. And it's, it's really a place that's uh, dignified and beautiful. Well, and I can think of 
um, so I'm trying to think back now. So would any trees still be existing from the original plantings by Washington? No. So would the oldest be the the Jackson Magnolia? Maybe the uh, so during the War of eighteen twelve, the president's house was burned, right? And they think most of the grounds were destroyed at the same time. Uh, there was until recently a tree, an elm that had been planted by John Quincy Adams, as far as anyone knew. And it finally was damaged so badly in a storm that it had to be taken down. But I just loved the fact that the head gardener at the time, whose name was Irv Williams, he had taken cuttings of that tree and grafted them onto new rootstock so that they had one to plant so that, well, it's not the original tree. It's still got some of those same cells, if you will, right? Some of that living material brought forward and replanted. And so I think that's, you know, that's a, it's kind of a poignant reminder that we can save history, including garden history, uh, in a very real way. Yeah. And there was that ebb and flow from you know, especially the early presidents who all had these sort of well-known homes and gardens. And, you know, that, as you say, this these living plants or seeds going back and forth from, you know, Mount Vernon to the, Washing- to, to the White House and then from the White House back to Mount Vernon. I think it was during the Truman renovation. They moved some, like, the bricks back to uh, re- uh, renovate a brick wall at Mount Vernon because they didn't want to get rid of the bricks, but they needed to move them from where they were. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I remember uh, in some of Jimmy Carter's yes. you know, memoir typewriting, him talking about bringing little trees back to Plains, Georgia to plant on their place. You know, I just think that that it's, it's beyond charming. It's It's a part of what makes us gardeners and, you know, what makes us share a culture and a history. And for me, it was, it really added credit and um, it, it gave me admiration from these presidents or for these presidents who were gardeners and you got this sense of real heart, you know, that exactly as you were just citing that the the stories you relate about Jimmy Carter bringing plants to the White House and then taking them home with him after he was done with his presidency. I loved the story of how he built the treehouse for Amy to have sleepovers in uh, the Atlas Cedar while he was in... um, in the White House was a wonderful uh, human illustration of another quote that I really enjoyed, which was, if the White House gardens could speak, they would likely tell both state secrets and children's stories. (laughs) Well, it's easy to forget that this iconic building and its landscape, it's a private home in addition to this extremely public place that we see 
you know, behind newscasters on cable news channels. And, you know, it appears so often that we kind of forget that that's someone's home for the extent that they live there. And they have children and they have happy times and they have tragic times. And they have a lot of, you know, sort of important things that they do, both personally and professionally. So it's, it's sort of everyone's garden, and yet it's their garden as well. Yeah. So that leads me to my last question, which is um, maybe uh, a stretch, but having seen these patterns of people and, and places and the way what they bring to the White House and um, what, what of themselves and their own histories they bring to these, this house and garden. Um, what might you imagine will happen in the, in the, coming, the coming presidencies? Hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. I speculate a lot on that myself. A lot depends, of course, on who is elected and on the first spouse shall we say, mm-hmm. who is the first spouse, um, you know, what they decide to do. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the uh, vegetable garden, the food garden that Michelle Obama's put in. Uh, right adjacent to that, there's a lovely pollinator garden with native plants that are local to the Washington, D.C. area. There's the beehives, but those are all since the Obama administration, and they might or might not persist. Uh, again, it's going to be up to the next administration what happens. And so, you know, I, I could see, depending on the candidates who are still uh, active, you know, we could have everything from the entire South Lawn being turned into a farm to uh, something really over the top. (laughs) I think that was a diplomatic answer. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for being with us today. Is there anything else you would like to share with listeners about your experience of writing this book and immersing yourself in this history? I would just say that you know, history can always be surprising. And in that way, it's just like a garden. It's different every day, and there's always something new to learn. Yeah. Thank you very much for being with us today, Marta. Thank you, Jennifer. Marta McDowell is a historian and author. Her books include Emily Dickinson's Gardens and Beatrix Potter's Gardening Life. Her most recent book is all the President's Gardens, a fact-filled gardener's read this Independence Day and summer. Next week, the conversations continue to bloom when we're joined by Deborah Princing, gardener, writer, outdoor living expert, and founder and passionate advocate for a movement supporting American-grown flowers and known as the Slow Flower Movement. We talk flowers and beauty and sustainability and the importance of and how people are bringing these three things together. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Matt Schiltz. 
For audio archives of today's program or to subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast, please go to mynspr.org. More information on all the President's gardens, including many photos, can be found at jewelgarden.com. Stay in touch with Cultivating Place daily on Instagram and weekly on Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.